And just to <clears throat> check, Brennan, my yeah. audio seems to sound very echoey to me in the room. Do I sound really echoey? No, it sounds fine. Okay, good. Just want to check. I just mixed the one we did on Monday, and I didn't have to EQ too much, and I, I thought it sounded pretty decent. So, cool. Yeah, I think we'll be okay. Um, do you want to do a little intro, Rob? No, we'll we'll do that after the fact. We'll be what we'll we want have, to, okay. we won't have a chance to do that, but I, I mean, I, I can just add that later. Yeah, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. What is this then? <laughs> so there are a lot of threads well, there, Malcolm. Hmm. Would you like to get into play, or what are you interested to get out of this hour or so together? Well, I guess to um, think again about your, you know, where where are you where are you heading with your your research, your experience, all the different different avenues and and past that you're checking the, the data that you're building up really about the state of the state of plane education what kind of you know where is where is it kind of leading you what sort of um, um, ideas is it giving you about about how's you know what's the next the, the, the best ways to move the best ways to to build on what we have and I guess you know so that's the kind of the meta picture isn't it what you're picking up from from all of this um and then how that how that features in your own uh work in your own in your own educational environments how are you able to and what are you having joy with what are you feeling really uh, enthused about within your own environments and that so that's that's Two things. The third thing, I don't know if you know the film Alphabet. Have you watched this movie? It's quite a few years old now. Very, very wonderful film about the whole state of education. I mean, it has people like um, Andre Stern and um, Arno Stern, you know, this guy who, where was he? Originally German, Austrian, um, came into France, set up this whole approach to giving kids this free space in which to paint, you know, um, I can't remember what the, the concept was called now, but they grew, they brought up their kid without any educational, any formal education, you know, Andre Stern. And so it, it, it's people like him. And it, and it also spends a lot of time looking at like developments in China, the Chinese education system and um, the rigor that's applied to training kids' brains to become exam taking machines and of course you know to see this 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 picture of huge hallways filled with little kids little kids you know like just concentrating so much you couldn't hear a pin drop concentrating on on passing these exams or, or working on some math quiz you know math competition which they're crazy about there and they're saying you know this whole world that they've created where children no longer have access to free play the thing which human beings are kind of just born to you know um, engage with and learn from you know the primary source of real education and a fulfilling uh, sense of self 
is coming from those play experiences. And so what, you know, what they're finding, of course, we're leading to a society of that, that people cannot deal with the, um, the kinds of complexities that are coming up in their societies and are more prone to, to stress, more prone to cluelessness, more prone to depression. Um, their brains may be extremely advanced, but um, as human beings, it, it, it's, there's a lot to be desired. And of course, we're not at that extreme, I would say, perhaps in the West. I don't know, maybe in some ways we are. But play, you know, so that's the third thing I want to put in there is this something that I've, I've been involved with myself in, uh, in play environments in, in London, developing adventure playgrounds and play buses and under fives play and stuff like that. So it was a big theme for me at some point in my life. And I know something I learned a lot from, you know, watching kids and, and, and the importance of, of their access to play. So I, I guess I'll throw those three things in the pot and um, let you stir them up. Go ahead. Take it from wherever you want. <laughs> well, to go back to where our, our personal interests aligning with the work that we're doing in schools I think I could say at this point, I, I think I could only word this this way in the last month or so. And I think that is that I've come to really realize I like harmony or rather the seeking of harmony. And if you are an Enneagram fan, I am a nine, the peacemaker it's often called, but I've realized that that's actually uh, the incorrect vocabulary for it because it's not that I like making peace. It's actually that I like seeking harmony, and that's actually an active process, not a passive one. I think I've only realized recently that, like, I think I've been most effective and most playful and most joyful when I can see disharmony, when I see things that aren't clicking, when I see a waste of resources, when I see conflicts between value systems, when I see, as I've been labeling it recently, like this tug of war of primarily these three values of the kind of traditional approach, the mainstream and the progressive approach to education, beginning to actually like see that tug of war happening in every school context that I can see. And at least for me, what's really interesting right now is seeing and naming that tug of war. And then by naming it, creating kind of almost like the board game space to actually be able to engage with it. And that's certainly what's happening in my current school. Like this isn't even hidden at this point. We're explicitly doing this. Like our staff meetings nice. are being centered around this idea of, okay, Hey, we spent all last year diving into what a traditional school is, what a mainstream school is, what a progressive school is. We as staff voted, parents voted and this, most of the students in the high school got to vote too, which of these three is the best fit for a context? We set a mainstream approach, like a very orange in the spiral dynamics or Frederick Lelou systems models, like this is the approach we want. Okay, now we're engaged in the process of finding those disharmonies to go, okay, well, where? Because the school is largely traditional leaning. We say, okay, well, if we want to be mainstream, and to use integral, we look across the four quadrants, or as we've kind of remixed them here on the podcast, the eight aspects of school. So looking at the environments and the systems, the practices, the resources, 
the uh, communities and cultures, and then the reactions and beliefs within each individual, we can say like, okay, well, where's the disharmony? Where are we still trying to do things in a traditional way that actually clashes with this mainstream direction we say that we want to bring things in? And for me, that right now is really enjoyable and juicy and, and uh, is the most interesting challenge, I think, professionally for myself right now. Yeah, I mean, what just just before Brendan comes in, I mean, what what comes up there? First of all, one question was like, okay, what the hell is wrong with disharmony? You know, I mean, we we need it, and in a sense, that's what you're saying, isn't it? It's through this disharmony, it's through being through noticing disharmony, having a model like the framework that you're developing and applying that you can that you can identify and get curious about aspects which which are not optimal or in in some way seem to be resisting the integration into the fuller kind of uh, system is in a, in a way. Um, and I guess as you get curious, you know, about this, this question of harmony, what brings harmony? Why is there disharmony? This sense of what harmony is actually deepens, doesn't it? You know, there's not one set kind of ideal, you know, now we've reached harmony. No, it's going to keep taking you to kind of deeper and more more interesting levels, I would say. Yeah, sounds 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 great. You've done a lot of work at um, put, putting the the infrastructure in there. It sounds, you know, and uh, and now it, it's uh, sounds like yeah, there's so much to um, so much to enjoy about the ride ahead. Yeah, it's been it's been a, it's been a journey through hell personally and professionally to get to this place, but certainly reaping some of the rewards. From it now. And yeah, I think that that idea of like harmony, not as an endpoint, but harmony as a process has been yeah. an important distinction for myself personally. Because yeah, it, it's, I think, yeah, disharmony is important. And at least for someone who's wired like me, this is probably not the case for many others, but someone who's wired the way that I am, disharmony feels threatening. But disharmony now i think i'm beginning on a good day to realize that harmony is like the smoke alarm or the the circle of something being highlighted like oh this needs your attention like yep. this is coming to the forefront this needs tending or this should be something your focus is on for what's happening and to mm -hmm redirect my wiring which would by default prefer to pretend that's not happening or actively ignore yeah, yeah. it and seek something else that is already more harmonious so this is on my own personal level uh, been a process of rewiring my natural tendency to go okay no disharmony is the sign that this needs attention um and I'm slowly, on a good day, again, slowly, that's becoming my default. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to have benefits for everyone. And Brendan, how, how for you? Well, myself and Rob talk take? about this. We talk about this all the time, right? So, you know, although we only record an episode once every two weeks, we probably have the equivalent of about five other episodes worth of discussions 
And the nature mm. of the podcast is that we can't really be, we can't name names, right? It's like, you know, we're, we're in a school with, with wonderful people and people that we uh, have uh, issues with, shall we say? Mm. Um, on, on any given day, that could be anyone, right? And so the thing is that we get to have a lot of really detailed conversations. And um, so what Rob's just explained the really, really interesting process that he's gone through with his school. I've kind of gone in a different direction and it was the discussion we had with Brad Kirshner who kind of like, you know, made this clear in my head that this was actually, even though I keep saying like, you got to make this explicit and teach it. I think for my context, for the school I'm in, which is an IB school, which has already arguably got a defined kind of model that's leaning towards progressive. Mm-hmm. Me coming in and having the discussion about the three types of school explicitly, when I did try to do it, wasn't received quite as well. It wasn't like there was a gap waiting for a model to come in. Um, so what I've done, because I'm... I'm in this weird role called a curriculum coordinator in an IB school, basically you have to have this role of somebody who works across the entire program and basically connects teachers and does collaborative planning with them. And so I have all these opportunities, not so much to do the big, I do run a lot, I don't run a PD session. So we do one every week on a different subject or whatever, but you know, the, the, the interesting or the more important conversations are the ones I'm in the room with the two or three teachers and we're talking through the nitty gritty of where the issues are, where the problems are, where we have opportunities for doing better inquiry-based learning. And you'd assume that an IB school would attract mostly green, progressive-leaning teachers. Well, that's actually far from the case. We've got a, a really big spectrum. And we have a large number of teachers who are definitely, who default more into those traditional-ish kind of values. And so really, really interesting discussions about no matter what issue is arising, whether it is about assessment, whether it is about play-based learning, because I work all the way down from the, three-year-olds, the teachers that work in preschool all the way up to grade six. So it's a big range. Um, It's really, really interesting. I'm now, the more I do, I'm in my third year of this job, the more I do, I can get what myself and Robin, our friend Lenny described as the droplets, the idea of just the little nudge here or just the little question and uh, I'd say, unlike Rob, although I don't seek a disharmony, I don't have quite, um, I, it doesn't necessarily, it's something that I will kind of wade into sometimes for fun, and sometimes um, with a burning passion. Um, I think it's a long way of saying that I'm, working more on that relationship level, that day-to-day level, which I know Rob is very, very good at. And so, you know, he's describing the big picture stuff, but I know day-to-day he's doing the same thing. So 
you know, I'm trying to focus very much in these collaborative planning meetings on discussing the real details of, you know, where are those three types of school coming into conflict with each other without really ever explicitly saying, I never use really the colors, although I do with a couple of people in the school. Um, I use those terms, traditional mainstream progressive a little bit, but I even stay away from those terms and really just talk through the issue as it stands. And I think what it's, what's happened is through working with Rob and through all of the people we've spoken to, I've just become more aware of just listening, trying to work out where people are coming from, trying to uh, assume best intentions, trying and really work with people where they're at. And so what I've done this year, I've managed to kind of free up some time, my timetable to team teach with people. So now just in the last month or so, about eight, because I've got 16 teachers I work with. So about eight times a week, I go into the, one of their lessons and then we do a kind of team teach, which can look anything from me being like a classroom assistant role all the way up to me leading the lesson or the two of us sharing the lesson. And that, um, again, has stepped it up and made it even more real because obviously I'm sitting in a meeting and we all as adults are very good at, you know, setting out our stall. Um, but once you're actually in there for the entire hour uh, working, it gets real. <laughs> and uh, it's been great, actually. This is a lot more real conversations, which sometimes are tough, Um but uh, really trying to embody that idea of, you know, everyone's at a different place and how can we have a discussion about what we want, what's our vision, what's realistic, and uh, how can we kind of build a better school and be better educators? Yeah, <clears throat> sounds like you're both involved in some, you know, fantastic uh fantastic work fantastic kind of questioning and inquiry really isn't it about what what should a school really be about and I, and I suppose you know what <clears throat> what comes to my mind you know what's implicit in this isn't it is what are those intentions because you know are we feeling you know we want to be in a place where we feel confident that the that the, that the young people the children that have come through this educational experience, in our school are going to be going out into the world um, with, <laughs> with a, good, a good chance of coming up with the right solutions huh, to, the, to the kinds of issues that, that, that we're dealing with, you know, that, um, that the world is calling out to be attended to. And at some point, you know, you've got a feeling sooner or later that, that that's got to be kind of like a laser-like focus, isn't it, on, on education to not to be talking in terms of making sure everybody's gainfully employed. Of course, that's going to be an important part of the picture still for a long time. But, but how, are we, how are we busy at and, and confidently helping the human project stay around for another good few centuries by creating the kind of mindset and the, the, the creativity um, and the confidence and the ability to adapt to, 
you know, diverse kinds of input, take perspectives. This, this kind of, I mean, obviously all this stuff that we're, that we're fascinated by uh, in the integral model, um, are those implicit within, within what you're doing, would you say? And is this sort of implicitly at work in the, in the kind of where you are with, with the series, with the podcast, with your inquiries? No, <laughs> no, um, I think there are, there are many just in my trying to prepare a response. I think there are like six different things to address in what you, what you're getting at there, Malcolm. Um, I think one distinction that I would make is first of all, like I'm a dude having like a midlife crisis at this point. It's like, I'm hardly the one to say I've got how to operate in the world figured out. <laughs> so it's sort of like, if we start from getting your own house in order, it's sort of like for myself at this point in my own life, it's like, well, I realize that's actually quite a large task and it's not a binary thing of like, you're prepared to get going for the rest of your life or you're not. But there is this idea of like, I think planting seeds that may or may not sprout later when required. And I think that's the side of the spectrum or where I fall in the graph a little bit is not to say, oh, I have a really clear definition of what is required for someone for success in the modern world. Because I certainly feel I'm still barely figuring that out <laughs> for myself, let alone on some kind of meta level that could be applied to all of humanity. But in my own tiny corner of the universe, there are certainly a few things that I've found the most useful. And some of those, I would say, come from things like models, like integral frameworks or spiral dynamics, or you know some of the things that we talk about. And I've tried to take some of those such as, you know, something like using the quadrants from integral theory to inquire into something. And, you know, my first year or two of teaching, I tried to explicitly teach those to students and those crashed and failed and were lessons that were a waste of my time and a waste of nine and 10 year olds time <laughs> as well. But then later, like when Brendan and I were working together, again, this comes back to a bit of the harmony thing. It was like, I was sitting in conferencing with students and sorry if I repeated, I think I've spoken of this a little bit previously in one of our previous chats, but um, you know, I sat with the same 20 kids conferencing with them about their writing week after week and realized I just kept repeating the same things over and over again, which is like, Hey, you've described the action in your story really well. I don't know where this is happening. I don't really have a sense of the setting. I don't really have a sense of your character's inner world about their thoughts and their feelings. Hey, were there other people here? Because if there were, you didn't mention them in the story. And just from this idea of like me wanting to have a clear visualization in my mind of what these kids were creatively trying to convey within the domain of, hey, this is what we're doing for the next six weeks. Like, you know, this is still half imposed on them from the structure they're in, but also giving them the, the space within the playground 
but wanting them to get the most out of it. I just noticed these patterns. Then I was like, oh, well, here's a perfect fit for the quadrants. Because in that lower right quadrant, I can ask the kids to describe the setting, where it's happening, and the context of when it's happening. In the upper right, they've got that, the actions, really well. That makes up 90% of what they've written. But they can also give a little bit more description on what some of those important objects are. And then in that lower left, it was like the dialogue. So like what's actually being said between people. But then also the nature of the relationships. Like, okay, so... Are these friends? Are they enemies? Are they frenemies? Does one know the other, but the other doesn't know this person? Like, describe the relationship here between these people. And then that upper left, the thoughts and feelings. So, you know, what is this character saying to themselves about the situation, the thoughts? And then what's happening in their emotions or their body as far as their feelings go? And that wasn't me going, oh, I need to make sure a kid leaving my class understands the quadrants. That was me saying, hey, I would like these kids to feel proud about the writing they're making and create objectively, I have air quotes <laughs> for those listening, objectively make their writing better than it was before they knew about this system and engaged with it. And the outcome was that I ticked both those boxes. The writing was they, and, better according mm, to this. And, and the they students had could uh, more see satisfaction. That. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the students had way more satisfaction and actually mm. reported back to me that they enjoyed writing more now than they did before because they get it. Like they could yeah, yeah, create yeah. better pieces and enter kind of, I would argue for some of them more like flow states in terms of being able, like now the level of challenge was appropriate to them because they had a, a strategy for how to engage with the writing in this way. And so for me, that wasn't consciously me saying, hey, the quadrants have been useful in my life. I want to make sure a kid gets these yep, yep. when they leave my class. But that met my needs as a teacher. That opened up more for the students. <clears throat> and some of those grooves, I hope, you know, this is the part that I don't have the certainty on. It's like those kids wouldn't be able to explain the quadrants to someone else, the meta level of it. But they have engaged with writing texts in an integrally informed way, even as an eight or nine or 10 year old. And, you know, that wasn't the only place where the quadrants popped up. And again, I wouldn't say, oh, these are the quadrants and these are what you need to use. But, you know, if it was science, we could, for doing an inquiry, look into, hey, how do environments and systems play into things? What are some objective things we could look at? What are some social cultural you know, shared beliefs about these things, what are some personal experiences of these things? And again, we're hitting on those four areas that we can inquire into something. And those just kept popping up almost everywhere. And it was like, okay, <laughs> for the third time now, I haven't explicitly taught this, but it's been informed in everything we're doing. And it has become a bit of the habit in terms of the way that we look at and engage things. So I think that's, yeah probably the most obvious and clearest example for me where my own personal meaning and things that have been useful for my own engaging with the world in 2021 has trickled over into something that's been infected been effective in the classroom for me but so you you described the process where it sounds almost like it it kind of happened by a little bit by accident not by design 
it just seemed like the intelligent way to go about it. And then suddenly, aha, okay, here we go. Because I mean, I've always seen the four quadrants as a kind of a resource that you can apply to anything. You don't have to mention it explicitly, but if you're teaching people how to do a presentation, just apply the four quadrants, see what shows up in each quadrant and find out what skills people have and where they might be missing skills in one of the quadrants, something like that it can always be applied. But, but I, I was thought that, okay, yeah, you can't start teaching eight and nine-year-olds dryly about, you know, look, we've got these, you know, left and right, up and down, blah, blah, blah. No, we find great and interesting ways that they can enjoy that and 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 um and and get value from that in in a writing excessive but as they move through the school that that could become more explicit couldn't it you know they've 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 got it from a kind of you know just intuitive level and not seeing how it how it informs their storytelling and their imagination in some ways but as they get older and in different subjects this this framework can become, in a sense, more explicit as a means of inquiring, as a means of opening kind of avenues into issues and conversations, into looking at, you know, what we mean by living in a diverse society, for example, um, allowing us to bring in the spiral, for example. You know, so this is what I mean. We could, we could be using it much more explicitly here if we are kind of you know honoring the, the the age and the stage of their own development but but keeping that as a as a kind of framework that, that is going to inf uh, you know help form and guide them and then something they're going to be able to take into the world you know just as one example of what I was talking about before you know we'd like to feel confident that yeah we're giving kids we're giving equipping kids we've got we've got a sense in which this kids has got a grip of themselves and are now starting to lead their own journey um, and, and be confident about making their own decisions. There was, a, there was an interesting show about um, adventure playgrounds. And, um, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, when these adventure playgrounds were popping up in a lot of working class areas, you know, I remember going on a few myself. Um, they, they started, you know, they, they re retraced a lot now there's not so many of them around but there was there's one still very active in um, in Glasgow and uh, some of the workers there were talking about you know the kids that come there mostly very you know from pretty um, economically challenged areas one parent families etc but said after some months of coming regularly to this adventure playground and having all the experience of what of what's on offer there, the opportunity to really engage in a challenging way, find, you know, take risks and, and, and really go for it and, and build relationships. They said, you know, those kids are starting to talk about new challenges that they want to take on in their lives. They feel confident about, you know, not just looking for a job in the civil service or going to McDonald's, but they're thinking, you know, what, what's it going to take me to, to learn to be a doctor? I really want to be a doctor. You know, I really want to be a, a lawyer. So it's through this experience of, of, of the risk-taking and the adventure of play, they're being given this, 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 this inner confidence, you know, something that they want to take on and, and take on the challenge of life in a sense, which is something which would, you know, is obviously crying out to be, to be done. Um, so again, you know, it, sound, it sounds like we've really got the potential in the way that you're talking about to, 
to, to, to leave those kids with that same sense of confidence in being able to take on the challenge of, of this, this complex and difficult world that we're, that we've, that we're dealing with at the moment, Brendan. Yes. <laughs> and, and I wondered when you were talking about the people that you are, you have conversations with your teachers, Brendan, have you ever sat down and talked to them about, you know, about your own experiences of play? You know, you said a lot of them are coming from a quite a traditional view. Some of them are a little bit more green, some are orange. I wonder whether you know, it might be an interesting conversation actually to exchange, you know, what, how did you experience your childhood? You know, what was your, amazing play experiences how how wild did it get um well you actually quite, quite a significant one isn't it, it we, we talk a lot about our own experiences i mean because these are like hour long mm. conversations and so and i meet with the early childhood team twice a week for two full hours just a second I'll just edit this bit out, but I, I record for maybe, because the other podcast, it doesn't matter. The toilet's right here, right? And so it doesn't matter if someone goes to the bathroom in any of the others, but it's just for about 45 minutes to an hour once every two weeks. It, you know, uh, this is a bit more of a serious podcast. So it's kind of, I edit out the toilets, right? But uh, <laughs> it happens literally every single time, like at least two, maybe even three of the people in my house go to the toilet during that 45 minutes. Uh, so there's someone in there right now. So I'm just going to wait till they wash their hands and then I will take a pause and then I'll answer your question. About play, Brendan, yeah? Oh, yeah, I've got it. I, mean, I, I want to hear about, yeah. oh, I wanna hear about your about play it. experience. It would be great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I meet with the early childhood team up to three times a week in different places. And we talk a lot about our own experiences as, you know, as children and as uh, really? and our, wow. and our teaching. And this, the, the discussions are really quite ex expansive. They're not um, uh, super directed because about, uh, they're not super directed on specific lessons because they're much more about talking about the unit planning and the, kind of philosophy behind it we have lots of time for that which is absolutely great and um, we have some really good discussions about play-based learning and what it is and we've got a, a yeah. one teacher who works in our school who actually runs um, workshops on play-based learning um and so it's really really interesting watching different teachers because we have the three home teachers and we have three or four other specialist teachers pe and so on uh, who are um, who all have approached from different areas and all have different experiences with um, play themselves and with how they were taught and with how um, and their beliefs on what play-based learning should look like. And um, we talk a lot about this, the spectrum right down from basically what is essentially the same as recess or playtime. So it's completely unstructured and the adults are just kind of there and they're maybe kind of jumping in and talking and playing along all the way up to, you know, kind of setting up stations. 
So you're now thinking about the environment itself. And so one of the things that I guess limits of what you were talking about, the kids not having the free play. Yeah, the free play kind of, it can engender this kind of discussions and these kind of beliefs. But Bruna particularly talked about how there's a certain point where you have to get involved and actually structure the environment to, to take them above and beyond what would actually just naturally happen through play there seems to be a thing that when we get to about six or seven years old that if you just leave it at free play of course there would still be great discussions and great action but that seems to be the point where you can then start to bring in a little bit more formalized inquiry and start to use that inquiry cycle kind of model which does have a lot wouldn't that wouldn't wouldn't that depend on where they were playing I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, you keep put kids in a bedroom and say, okay, just free play. You know, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit limited. But if you put them in a wood or, or something like that, or an adventure playground, I mean, there's no reason to stop free play. There's no reason to impose um, kind of, you know, another another kind of level of structure, is there? No, there's not. There's no reason to. But again, the sliding scale allows you to have that discussion and make that decision. And so, okay, aggressive education goes right from the idea of Rousseau where the adult is basically in the way. And the best thing that we can do is move <laughs> ourselves completely out of that equation and just let them have free play. It's a very romantic notion and, and there's a lot of truth in it from my experience. Um, and then you get someone like Dewey who's in the middle and he says, actually, you, you got to get in there and help them to structure their play and structure their conversations. And Montessori is kind of around that area too and a lot yeah, of yeah. more you know 20th century progressive education followed that kind of model it's not free play you're you're in there and you're helping them yeah, to yeah. structure, right sure sure there's a facilitation going on even in adventure playgrounds of course sure. they've got an eye on what the kids are up to yeah yeah, yeah. And, and then you move into what the ib calls guided inquiry so they're quite explicit that it's not free inquiry once you get up to about grade two year three or beyond you're looking at this guided inquiry. So they have these models and that's kind of where a more mainstream educator would start to feel more comfortable in an IB school. And that's kind of, you're on the path then to more and more structured inquiry. And that's one of the criticisms of the IB from the progressive perspective that actually you start moving more and more towards looking like a traditional or a mainstream middle or high school. Um, but the idea of how much we should get involved is a conversation we have a lot. Yeah. So I, I did an art degree. So my degree, basically, again, I came at it from a very different angle from a lot of teachers in that, um, you know, in a, in a visual arts degree, you'll have a tutor and you'll meet with them once a week. And you, but you're, you're basically more or less free to design your own projects. So over the course of the three years or whatever, four years, with your foundation year, you're, you're learning to structure. And I learned the hard way by <laughs> repeatedly not doing it and being a total mess and just like almost failing multiple times. Um, other people, you know, kind of took to that quickly and then other people weren't able to take to it and they left the course. They wanted something much, much more structured, but it's quite a unique. There's not many people I've worked with that have done our degrees and, and had their study. And then I did teacher training in 
what's called the graduate teacher program. So I was in a school from day one. I didn't actually, we only had a couple of hours a week with a more lecture style. And so it's really interesting to for that to be a part of the discussion as well of like, oh, well, when you get to university, you're going to have to be able to do this and this and this. Well, well I didn't. And I'm working here with you. <laughs> so at some point, we both managed to take a similar path. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of really interesting discussions. And Playbase, I can go on forever because I've had so many really amazing discussions of what that could look like. I want to drop one thing in, though, about Rob and his teaching of writing. We've talked a huge amount about the hero's journey and the monomyth and using the quadrants and other integral elements to teach. And Rob's done this quite explicitly, and we haven't really touched on it at all in the podcast, but it's huge. And um, I've said a few times I'd love to do a mini series of about six to eight episodes where we unpack the teaching of writing using fantastic this yeah model. that would be interesting uh, yeah i'm quad- a writer too so yeah yeah, yeah. that's great well, maybe mm-hmm. we can do it together that'd be great because the quadrants you know rob kind of brought it into writing <clears throat> and then i started to use it in my classes and we refined it together a few times and then um i started dropping it into my school and that's one of the things that really just took off like I'll go into classrooms and I'll see someone teaching writing using the quadrants. Just like, and I wow, fantastic. Maybe I haven't spoken yeah. at all about it. They've got it from somebody else. I've had people teach it to me, <laughs> not knowing <laughs> that I even brought it in or that it's not some official. People ask me, where did you go? Where's this, where's this official well, from? Yeah, it I just say. shows, doesn't it? You know, when the time is right, you know, people exactly. just take to it. It just seems so valuable. Yeah, fantastic. And of course, I don't give Rob any credit. <clears throat> I say, well, I, I invented this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Same as what yeah. how my first answer started when I was talking about their model for schools. I don't give Brendan any credit for having co-created it together. Oh, it's a doggy dog world. Yeah, we're, cut, we're cutting what, each other's what, what do you what do you think about this tension, Rob? Between I mean, needing to provide structure, a structured approach, and you know, using structure so that it it, it it's not going to lead to a mere sense of you know, helping children, young people just be conformists, but that this, this tension between providing structure and also, and also encouraging in whatever different ways to break out of that structure, to challenge that structure. I mean, you can do that with the four quadrant approach to storytelling. This is, this is a framework in which you can inquire to different depths and levels what that might mean in the upper or the left or the whatever um but you know there's no ultimately there's nothing confining you and that's that's where you know i would feel what's exciting for me how we make that clear and create environments where that freedom of expression is something that we that we desperately need to keep hold Mm. of and encourage and so that it doesn't lead to some kind of bland conformity at the end of the day, which just repeats the, you know, again, you know, we need to move into the integral age, don't we? the integral consciousness space to deal with the level of problem that we're dealing with. So anyway, go ahead. So, yeah, What's I feel there, well, I'll that? start. I want your 
where this started is something I've been thinking about a lot and balancing and playing with. Um, yeah, for me, I'll just touch on this because I realized we could talk about this for an hour. Do we need to move into a majority focused integral stage? Of course, my biases lean towards being like, well, it sure seems like it would solve a lot of problems. But the longer I'm in contexts in my own life, I think, okay, maybe. But again, if we bring it back from the global to the local, it's like my local context, at least for now, is so far from that. And it's like, maybe put that on the back burner. And the priority for now is just how do I most fully engage with the context I'm in now? Because that's the thing that's having the most impact on my mental state, physical health, social life, all these sorts of things. And as best as I can, yeah. try to bring those things into my interactions as opposed to necessarily trying to change the environment or the people around me. Who knows? I'll probably flip-flop on that again in a couple of years, but I feel that's at least for now where I'm at. But to go back to your question about the, the tension between structured and not structured, I think the thing is there's always a structure or one way we could look at this is there's always a structure, but it's to what degree are we engaging with that? And perhaps structure is not even the correct word. I'll try from this entry point to say, I think good structures are great. And I think bad structures are not good. <laughs> <laughs> to say that mm. there are structures that can be engaged with which can be incredibly helpful certainly i can acknowledge that in my own life and certainly i can acknowledge that in terms of the work i've done with students i can also acknowledge particularly with my work with students there are structures that i think are an absolute waste of their times and in my own personal righteousness feel like borderline criminal to be forcing students to be spending hours of their life engaged with and sucking their enthusiasm and yes, creating automatons and all these sorts of things. So I think it's probably not even a spectrum of structure versus not structure, but I think X, Y axis of like structure, not structure in terms of how effective or beneficial for the context we're in. And then probably some extra line measuring student meaning, student value, and another line measuring like functional systemic fit, like is this important for the larger context or systems that this is happening within, which I feel is always the tricky thing to bring into the mix to say, yes, student meaning is important, but that student isn't existing in a vacuum. How is this fitting into the larger system, organization, communities, relationships around them? How is it meeting their needs as well? Yep. And it not being binary. And then on top of that, you know, I don't think we're saying this, I mean, we're not strawmanning, but to say, okay, we'll get rid of all structures, you know, there does need to be that self-expression. I think that's also true, but then what comes into play is, and is still in play when considering structures, 
if you try to remove structures, you still fundamentally are left with the structure of the individual as is, which I argue has a, you know, a U-shaped hole in you or an I-shaped hole in me that there is the degree to which we would naturally move towards. And then there's going to be some blind spot of you could leave me for a thousand years. And the way that I am structured right now would not have known to have added this other piece. So I think this has been messy and I apologize. I don't know if this has been totally clear because these are all things that bounce around in my head too. But I think the, the relationship between structure and individual is definitely not binary. And I think it's one more of about best functional fit and then measuring across multiple things in terms of individual meaning, um, relational systemic fit. And then I still think you had said something to the, the extent of like that individual expression. I think it's like, well, there are certain systems that can actually, in my opinion, encourage more individual flourishing and expression than when not provided. And perhaps the quadrant example I gave earlier is a good example of that. I could have left those kids with more free time to have written on their own and their stories would have almost been still entirely <laughs> action-based and missing those seven other pieces, which for most students, once they were introduced to, actually made their writing better and allowed them to enjoy it more and for them to feel that confidence of, holy crap, like I really was able to express myself more more fully well you here. gave them something you gave them something to play with actually which you gave them an interesting tool to play with to engage with i mean that's that's the thing again isn't it with the integral as well you know the the thing that we talked about well i've heard you talk about with the progressive or the post-progressive it's actually inviting isn't it the left-hand quadrants to come into play to come more into play the interior, because there's also a structure, isn't there? You know, I mean, every human being is born with an implicit structure of, you know, billions of years of evolution. You know, there's something mm -hmm. there where we already have a program to seek structure, to seek patterns. And I think the tools that we that we provide children with from an early age that allows them to to bring that inner structure more into into focus, something that they can kind of really truly engage with and inquire with. So I think it is, isn't it, about providing those kinds of tools, those invitations to play, because with the understanding that there is an inbuilt structure already that we just need to help to to nourish. Yeah, and I think and too much too much of the time is is about thinking we always have to impose structure from outside as a form of containment, because, you know, the fear is. If we don't have this containment, they're going to go running wild, breaking their legs, running up trees, killing one another. You know, this is the paranoia, I think, which in a sense is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it does lead to paranoid kinds of people. Well, you know? I want so to, this I want to bring yeah, go ahead. Brendan back into this because I realize I've gone off on a long monologue there. But I think here this is a sign Ron, to something good because I've got a rhyming thing in an education if you've got a two-word rhyme you know you've got something good here so i would say it comes <laughs> down to tools and rules and it's how do you okay. optimize the tools and how do you optimize the rules and mm -hmm. i'll just try to make mm -hmm. one small connection so 
five or six years ago, I went through it a year long phase of getting really into uh, game design theory. Uh-huh. And within game design, you realize that rules are actually one of the things that make the game more fun because you can sit down with all the tools of a board game, all the board game pieces. And it's actually sometimes the limits of what you're not allowed to do that then encourage far more fun and strategy to figure out, well, what can you do about that? And I think to some degree that links back, Malcolm, to your original impulse for this of like, well, when you do get out into the real world, it's not limitless. There are definitely limits on what you can do. Now, different Mm -hmm, people have mm -hmm. different definitions of what those limits are, but there will be some kind of limits. And then the real processes to engage with that to say, okay, well, given the limits and constraints I'm within, what's the optimal way to engage with this or play with this? And I think that notion of maximizing the use of tools and maximizing the use of rules, and at sometimes that means less. You know, some of the best games only have two or three rules, just like a good Mm -hmm, classroom mm -hmm. might only have one or two rules as opposed to a hundred small, subtle variations of what you shouldn't do. Um, I'll stop myself there. Brendan, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. There, there's a huge amount there, Robin. It's things that we've talked about a lot, but I, I'm really liking the detail we're getting into here because we don't normally have these extended open conversations where we kind of dig into those ideas. Now, this one of the ideas that's revolutionary connected to this is that zone of proximal development. The idea that a, a person with more knowledge or more skill can help you to get to the next step that you would never have got to by yourself or it would have taken you much longer. Or, and this is where I think with integral coaching, you know, identifying people's blind spots or what Freire does when he goes into the communities and he identifies um, people's blind spots and he identifies what, what the community is showing but can't say. And, you know, he, that's his model. He'll spend two months, three months. And he'll say, well, this is something I hear as you saying a lot. This is something that, you know, nobody seems to acknowledge and, and the, those themes. So I think that's the role of the teacher. I mean, going back around to this idea of like, what's, what is the role of the teacher if free play is the best way to holistically um, have students grow towards someone who can interact meaningfully and successfully in the 21st century then our role is to not be there but i think progressive education has you know played around with that idea and again going back to dewey it's come to the conclusion that yes there is a role for us and the role is to be (laughs) in that (laughs) the role is to be that more knowledgeable other that person who helps the students to get in that zone of proximal development but what is really key what are you doing in there and who's making those decisions and so in a mainstream school you're basically helping them to make the step in the direction that the government or the person running the school wants them to go to now it could be in their benefit but it also might not be but to, it doesn't really matter in the mainstream because this is the path you need to be on. 
And we talked to David Lebrie yep. about credentialism and how that kind of like is wagging the dog. And so that thing in the mainstream, if you are locked into most of the, most of the stuff you're doing in the zone of proximal development is to get people in the right direction to be getting those credentials. And that's all. That's where mainstream uh-huh. falls down. Uh, that's where the notion of agency comes in and uh, taking action within progressive education to say that if you're in that zone of proximal development, maybe you don't really know where you're going. You're just helping them to uncover where they need to go. And that's very much in line with something like Carl Rogers and the person-centered counseling kind of idea. Well, it just reminds me of the, 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 the show you did recently with Mihai Banalescu. Huh? I mean, he, he, he delighted in, in, saying quite a number of times to your questions i don't know <laughs> and, I, and i think that's something we've lost in a way isn't it you know when you when you you know as a kid when you when you you know at the edge of the wood and you're looking into this dark kind of you know amazing place this amazing wonderland of possibility you don't know but you've got a sense of confidence my god you know i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna find out you know i'm gonna i'm gonna explore it's exploration isn't it and it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to be able to think, you know, what, we, what we're helping to cultivate are spaces where fit, kids feel excited about this, this, this possibility of exploration. You know, and I think Rob's, you know, story idea that we talked about a lot, you know, it's, it's kind of when you look at it in one way. Yeah, it's just an invitation here. You know, th- this is it, it, come in. Let, let, this is a way to help you get drawn in to this, this amazing limitless space of exploration. But here are some tools that can help you make sense of that and put one foot in front of another. And, you know, like, like in the Montessori, you know, you, you don't uh, lift a little kid up and put him on a high up branch because he's looking at the tree and he, and he, and he sees the older kids up there and he wants to be there too. No, you, you, you respect where he's at and allow him to do what he can at his own particular level under his own particular steam you know that's the way for him to develop both from the inside and and in relation to what's going on outside so yeah you know just this um seems to bring it uh bring it into that kind of uh nutshell in a way spaces for for exciting exploration yeah yeah and in service of those spaces um back to the point of you know well what is the purpose or role of a teacher in this and one of the things we've been playing with on the in our model and in the podcast is this idea of a post-progressive educator having a fluid relationship um between what their role is and we've kind of laid out these kind of three archetypes or three types of relationships from the previous three models to say that the traditional approach to education has this master and apprentice relationship between the idea that you know, you're with someone who knows how to do this. Spend your mm-hmm. time around them. Listen up. They know you're not ready yet, but, you know, be around the expert, listen to the master, and you can be like them one day. In the mainstream, we've got this idea of the Olympic coach and the athlete. Now, it's all within the context of success in relationship to the curriculum, by and large, in the mainstream school. But there is another completely different, unique model, which basically says, no, 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 through a constant ongoing series of assessments, I can find the threshold of your zone of proximal development and keep you in it constantly 
to ensure the maximum efficient and effective use of our time so that you can achieve to the, your greatest potential mm-hmm. asterisk within our frame relate within our <laughs> yes. framework in relationship to the curriculum. And then the third one progressive basically being the nature, the relationship between a counselor. We don't have a great term in English, but the counseled. So this idea that no, actually your zone of proximal development doesn't have to be in relationship solely to a curriculum. Part of it might be, but your interior self gets brought into this too. And you get to negotiate what would be meaningful. You get to negotiate what some of your goals are here. You get to have your say in this as well. It's not only up to the curriculum or only up to tradition or the one way as was previously. So I think to take a post-progressive integral, whatever you want to call it, view on something like how do we create these spaces, you know, that (laughs) create that feeling of looking into the woods and the not knowing and the excitement and the adventure and the exploration and the confidence. I think the role of the teacher is to shift between those as necessary. And at times, whether it's us personally shifting between those three, becoming an expert, becoming a coach, becoming the counselor, or knowing when to step back and use the system to say, okay, no, this is a place where maybe the traditional master or expert needs to be brought in, but I'm not the expert for this. I'm going to back out and pull this other person or student into place to serve this. And then, okay, now actually, yeah, the coach is actually the relationship that would better serve this. And we need some of that data and that analysis. So that's where I'm going to step in. And then, okay, no, now time for negotiation. But you know what? The most meaningful thing would be for me to step out and have someone actually from the world outside the school, from the actual community, step in, you know, because the student's doing this real world project now that has real life meaning for them. And that person's going to be the counselor. And together we will negotiate what these outcomes are. I think if anything, that's one of the potentials we're trying to point to, to say, you're not beholden to any one of these relationships. You probably have a preference for one, but it's probably more skillful to develop your capacities in all three types of relationship, or at least the capacity to know when to shift between them or how to shift between them most optimally for your context. I was, I, what I would say uh, in line with that is the metaphor of the, the kid on the edge of the forest. You know, uh, we're asking that kid to be a brave explorer, but a lot of kids would run away from that forest. You know, maybe we, when we were kids, would have all faced that in a different way. Someone of running in recklessly without any, with any thought of what's in there. Some would run away from the forest. Some would require a guiding hand to kind of even get them in. And so that's kind of what, similar to what Rob's saying. If, if we do use that metaphor, let's say that there is something in that forest for everybody in, within that environment. And there, the role of the teacher, the adult is to read, read that situation and to support that child. But the thing is that that's already quite progressive 
view because if you look at that metaphor from a traditional or or a mainstream there's already a path there's a, there's a path through that forest already and so it's kind of it gets really really messy really quickly because you are we've done a lot of discussions recently at my place about internal versus external expectations We've, we've tried very much as a school to be you know, explicit about the expectations of what inquiry learning looks like and how we plan and how we interact with each other. And I think the IB, for all of its drawbacks, does a really good job of trying to set out a framework that's value-led and you know, actually inquiry-led. But then it's really interesting how people interpret that. And... Um, like I said, that's part of my job, actually, to try and really work with people to, you know, as they meet, as teachers meet this inquiry framework and this model, how they interpret that through their own biases and their own experiences and trying to make that kind of explicit. And it's, it gets heated at times, you know, ask questions. I think, that are... I think <clears throat> one, well, I mean, one thing that comes up from what both of you've said, I mean, the the next uh, question or point, I guess. I know yeah. it's half. I guess we'll today. have to wrap yeah. it up in five. I think we'll have to wrap yeah. it up soon. But but it, it's like, you know, what about the expertise of the child, and also the you know the image that you present of the children at the end of the wood, and you said some would run a mile, some would be freaked out, some would be you know I don't think I don't get that at all. That would not be my picture of. That would not be my image of seeing children at the edge of a wood. Maybe that's based on that's something very personal to me. You know, if a child is coming from a, you know, a kind of background, you know, they've lived in an inner city and they're presented, you know, the, the, you know, left alone at the, you know, obviously they're going to be, they're going to freak out. But in a normal, healthy kind of um, situation, um children are there knowing the parents are behind them if they're small knowing they've got friends with them and stuff like that come on you know as human beings young human beings faced with the prospect of a a chattering forest full of dancing sunlight trees whispering the wind blowing. i mean it's just that's what we live for that's going to be the most exciting place to to, to be surely and that's going so, to want to get it you think they're going to so. want to explore well Okay, let's say there could be there could be exceptions. There might be one. That's it's not, just that's... the one. Me. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go in what... there. No, make me go in the forest. What um, what you also said, Rob, about you know these three models of the the teacher pupil relationship. You know, like maybe in the progressive, there's a chance in which the kid is going to have the chance to have their say. And again, doesn't it? That also says to us, well, on what terms are they going to be able to have their say? Are we going to sit down with them and ask them questions or get them to fill out a form? Or are we just going to, are we just going to learn from what they do and trust their expertise about the way they go and let them show us through their actions, not negotiate some, some kind of uh, framework with them through language? Because, you know, they're just, just, that's just going to, you know, stupefy them. Um, trust the expertise of the children to show the way and to give you know this is what i'm really feeling is so important is at different stages of the whole school journey giving children the appropriate level of opportunity to to 
take some level of responsibility for what they experience and to be engaged for their expertise to show up and to lead the way more and more and more. And as teachers, you know, perhaps we do get this sense of responsibility that we've got to somehow, you know, package it all together and create these structures that everything is going to be looked after. No, do we, do we give enough space for the expertise of the child, the implicit expertise, the interior, to really trust that and show us the way? You know, that's, that's the, 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 the question for me. Yeah, that's the one I feel most aligned with, too, because I think as soon as you ask what, you know, what does a good education look like? You know, we drift into those. We've kind of identified three common names between the three types where we say, yeah, well, there's getting you ready for work to some degree, and that's going to look different. The cultivation of citizenship and, you know, traditional mainstream progressive will have different ideas about what that means and self-development. And all three of them will have that, but all three of them, again, have different definitions about what those mean. So they're using the same terms, like, well, we want to develop students' sense of self-development. Well, that's, you know, if you looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, there'd yeah. be three different mm -hmm. definitions. Like, well, the traditional says self-development means this, and mainstream says this, progressive says this. But yeah, the, I definitely resonate with what you're saying from the more progressive and post-progressive part of me, which is, you know, what does a good life look like? Well, if we dissolve that down to what a good education looks like, it's like, well, of course, your own inner drive, your own inner voice, your own wants should be included <laughs> in this universe. And, you know, I think this is the new-ish thing that progressive is really, you know, progressive and post-progressive view is bringing is to say, no, no, this needs to be included. This has to be in the mix. It's not only about tradition and duty. It's not only about achievement and, you know, opening as many doors to you as possible. Yes, those mm. things do bring a good life. But without this other part of you being in the mix, it's tough to have this full, complete sense of a good life. And I think, you know, bless the traditional and mainstream work that has gone on before to lay the groundwork to get us to this place in the kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that this is front and center as a topic to say, okay, good. If we can do all this achieving and all this opportunity making, we can, you know, uphold all these traditions and stuff. But at the end of the day, if, if we're feeling left out and alienated and divorced from a sense of meaning in this, yeah, it's kind of empty and we're going to go searching that way. I think that's why the, yeah. the green, the green dream appeals so quickly to a lot of parents because and to a lot to a lot of us because it, it is missing in education right as soon as you start saying you bring your whole self you can uh, uh, make your own path and you have agency and the people you know resonate with that because it's like oh actually yeah i wish i'd had even when just a glimpse of it when we do things like the, the readers and writers workshop where children are actually working on their own pieces day after day rather than being given worksheets or whatever and you introduce that to parents and like i wish i had this when i was a kid because it's so much more freedom and you know we kind of crave that but then we get the the worries that uh, the credentials are still ruling the roost here and yeah, so that's sure. where the fear comes in quickly 
And I, I, I say, I go back to this quickly just because this is my day-to-day -day conversation <laughs> with every single person, right? So it's like, it's this balance between how much freedom and agency can we give kids? Um, where can that go? And then where do we need to go, quote, unquote, need to go? And as we start looking at transitions between grade six and into middle school, grade seven, and those, you know, we just opened up a high school you know, and the next year will be our first cohort that gets the diploma. And so it's already, you know, those questions are being asked more and more. So yeah, in my heart, I'm always asking, how can we get more of that agency? How can we get more of that? Um, and being aware of this idea that we've come up with a green sheen, which is where you take a mainstream orange school and then you just sprinkle a little green fairy dust around just enough to make it appeal to a mainstream like greenwashing isn't it yeah a little bit and so we have to be wary of that it's actually maybe worse than just having a really healthy mainstream school but having this kind of maybe unhealthy mainstream school with just little bits of the odd you know wellness day or the odd kind of like uh, event to kind of just keep, um, to appeal, almost like advertising. But I think I think the main thing, just to wrap it up, I guess, because you know, we're heading off. I mean, the, 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 the fact that you're both engaged in an inquiry, you know, into this rather than running around like we know what the hell we're doing, we've got it all sussed, you know, just follow these orders, you know, this is the prescription, blah, blah, blah. No, you know, we've got to keep engaging with this question. What the hell is this for? You know, where is it leading? Where do we want it to lead? You know, let, and, and we're looking at the, the present moment. You cannot avoid it. It's, you know, it's ramping up. We've got to be looking in terms of, you know, learning from the present moment. And also, I think, engaging as much as possible with the expertise of the human beings that are on the planet, they're in front of our very eyes giving them the space and the tools and the structures to, to show us where we need to go, you know, and, and, and stop this kind of big brother sense of containment. We've got it all sourced. We're going to squeeze you in. We're going to very cleverly kind of push you in the way that you need to go because, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, it's, it's just so, you know, over the top now, isn't it? It's, it's, it's had its day in a way. The, the levels of whatever you know you know what i'm saying i don't have to keep keep going on about it and um i think another thing that that rob also mentioned isn't it and i think another guy this mihai mihai talked about as well was you know for him a school where teachers have this engagement with where the hell am i as a human being right now you know <laughs> if we want to create a center I remember listening to a guy saying, you know, he was, he was creating some center for moths or something. He said, I've realized in putting this center together that, you know, to have a center means to be centered. You know, you cannot create a center, you know, but oh, fantastic, you know. And I think it's with it, finding the harmony within ourselves, what that harmony means before we can start to really um, find the right tools and the structures for ourselves to bring that harmony into the world in which we live, huh? So that's another really important um, piece, I think, that we could talk about again. In it's beautiful. Time. I'm ready for round three. Well, let's <laughs> give it a few months. And um, well, yeah, yeah. I enjoy these discussions because, like I said, we we don't we rarely, myself and Rob, spend a full hour just 
uh, going through these. When I say rarely, I mean like only every other day, but it's good to record <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah, no, well, the challenge, Brendan and I, we often, every couple of days, leave extended voice messages for each other on Messenger. And then, you know, one of us replies back often with five to 10 minutes worth of responses. But it's rare that we get to do it in real time together and add on to something someone has just said as opposed to it simmering for a day or two. So yeah, this is really cool to to condense like several weeks of our talks into the span of an hour. This is enjoyable. So mm -hmm. thanks, Malcolm, for yeah. giving us this opportunity. And I like that we're leaving on a cliffhanger to to uh, to set up another chat sometime in the near future. It's been great playing in the woods with you guys. Yes, I appreciate <laughs> yeah. the questions and um, I'm enjoying these sessions. So, Yeah, and okay. I do want to say your description of the woods, Malcolm, I get, oh yeah, no, no, that does sound pleasing because I had somewhat more the Canadian style of like, well, there might be snakes and bears. <laughs> okay, in the yeah. Dark yeah, woods, yeah. but when you express <laughs> beautiful sunlight and the breeze, and all, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, no, I get yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different backgrounds, different ideas of... of what would yeah look importance like. of importance <laughs> of defining terms isn't it yeah we can never be too careful absolutely yeah <laughs> all okay right, guys perhaps. thanks a lot great start to the sunday oh, thank you very much end to the sunday for great you brendan yeah. yes. all right yeah take care okay all right see you, Malcolm. Cheers, then. See you bye. bye bye